How can someone be aging faster than someone else? Have kids. Ah, yeah. The average population age stays younger if you have more kids. So averages are a little bit weird. Otherwise, you would say, no. "Wait a minute, you can't age faster than me." Well, I I think that's I think it's reversal. The yeah, average age when you, have, when you have kids, you get older quicker. Yeah, the the adults get older quicker, but because they had kids, the average population's getting younger. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, but you feel a lot older after you've had kids. Yes, you do. Take care of them. Yeah, changed a few thousand diapers. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, I'm Jake. I'm bald. I have a dark kind of salty, peppery beard. On the line with me, I have another bald name. Would you say who you are? Jeff. I'm, I think I'm Jeff. And you should keep the salt and pepper out of your beard when you eat, and that way it'll stay black. Just telling you, it's seasonally adjusted. I, I adjust it with seasoning on a regular basis yep. to spray it all in my face. I'm repeating a joke I just said less than five minutes ago to the producer of the program. So now everyone else can act like they heard it for the first time. Wait, I think economists say the same jokes over and over again. They do. They're like dad jokes, only they're economist jokes. Well, we're both dads as well. In fact, the elder Baldy here is my dad. Uh, Jake is the son of Jeff. And we've been partners in our business, or at least working together in the business, since 1991. That would make you you Jake Jefferson. uh, Yeah, if we were in Denmark. Um. I am thinking back here. I passed the 30-year mark working with you in January. That's weird. And we haven't killed each other. Well, not more than once or twice. The modern medicine's really good for, for that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. So this is the personal wealth coach. We are going to talk to you about economics, both in the personal level and at the big macro level. And hopefully build some kind of a bridge between the two. Because a lot of times people say, how in the world does this affect me personally? Well, that's what we do. We're going to talk to you because this program is called The Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, We also have a firm named The Personal Wealth Coach that's registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as a fiduciary, as an investment advisory firm. But just because the firm is registered with the SEC does not in any way say that the SEC has given us any kind of approval. And anybody that listens to this program or has listened for very long lengths of time have heard us talk about this. The the Securities and Exchange Commission is not, it's not their job to approve of things. In fact, their job is to disapprove of things. But they do. They do have a criteria to register with them, though. Yes. They have to have over $100 million under management. That is true. That is and then true. you don't have an option. It's not a matter of now you can register with us. It's if you have over $100 million in the management, you will register with the SEC. It is a must thing. 
So a lot of uh, fiduciaries are registered directly with the state. If someone says they're registered with the SEC, it just talks about the amount of assets that they're managing. It's a larger amount than it's with the SEC. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have to also register with the states, but that's more of a, like a polite statement to the states saying, hey, we're here. So that's out there. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to hit the fiduciary thing because I mentioned it already. While we give fiduciary investment advice, that's, that's the whole thing that the firm does. We can't do that on the air because fiduciary investment advice means that we would actually have to know each of you individually and be speaking one-on-one instead of to the masses. There's privacy issues there. So what are we doing on the air? Well, we're bringing educational material. We're going to talk about the financial news and the financial data and talk about how that fits into expectations for the economy, expectations for yourself. What does it mean when the housing market's like this? What are tax changes? What All that stuff. Educational. We're not going to give you advice on what you should do because if we tell one of you that you should do this, it's probably the wrong advice for everybody else. <laughs> So we need to customize that. We'll give you the information, and if you need personalized advice, that's when you would talk to us one-on-one. That's two disclosures in one. You get to do the deeming disclosure if you'd like. The educational information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but make no warranty or guarantee as to as to its completeness or accuracy. Fantastic. You like that? That was cool. I think we need to alter that to see to say accuracy or com- so that you don't finish the word complete you see what i did there but that would be an incomplete disclosure or a disclaimer well the disclaim the disclosure is that we're making no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness so we should do you see what i'm saying i no i don't i hear what you're saying but i don't see it at oh, all oh my goodness we we are obviously nerds we are we practice at it yeah. You have no idea the number of hours we spend each week practicing to be nerdy. It is practice that has become so normal that we don't even think of it as practice. <sighs> That's who we are. So, what happened this week in the market? Mm, it went up and down and up and down and didn't go anywhere. That That's a pretty good summation. Okay, on to the next subject. <laughs> the S&P 500 <laughs> stock index which is the one we follow, seesaw it around. It was down on Tuesday. It was up on Monday, down on Tuesday. Well, actually, it slid slowly downward on Monday. It dropped on Tuesday, came back nicely on Wednesday and in halfway through Thursday. And then Thursday, there was an announcement that President Biden was going to increase capital gains taxes, and it dropped from 4175 to 4125 which is a minuscule drop. But let's put a bookmark on that because the fact that it dropped at all on that announcement is one of the subjects we'll be talking about later. And then the next morning it went right back up again. It hit a record high late Friday, record interday, intraday high, and then it slipped back just a little bit at the close of business and wound up down. Let's see, what was it? It wound up down 0.13% for the week. So if you don't look at it during the week, you would say the market moved 0.13% for the week. If you look at it day-to-day, there was a lot of excitement. It soared, it collapsed, according to the headlines. But it ended at 4180.17, if you're following that. Um, it's just basically just over, it's 14, 
hundreds of 1% below an all-time record, which means it's still high despite the fact it fell. Um, in the news about the capital gains tax, we mentioned that, or you mentioned that earlier, but I mean, it, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Anyway, the yield on the benchmark 10-year treasury fell 1.3%, which is next to nothing, to one point five six four. Not so the S&P 500 moved next to nothing. The yield on the 10-year treasury moved next to nothing. Go ahead. The 10-year the treasury not very long ago was up to 1.75. It's down to 1.564, roughly. one. Let's round it to 1.6 or 1.5. What happened? Does it mean? Does that mean that because it, the, the interest rate on the treasury is a pretty good forecast of what the bond, the traders in the bond market believe are going to happen is going to happen in the future. The higher the interest rates go, the higher they think demand for loans will be in the future. But it slid back from 1.75, not because it thinks loan demand is going to be high, but because fears of inflation are vanishing. We're looking at the longer term numbers and we can talk about that a little later with wages and so on. And there's no evidence of underlying inflationary pressures building up. There's going to be some short-term inflation. There already is. If you've gotten gasoline lately, you've noticed that it costs you more to fill up your tank. And that's where the majority of the pressure is coming from that we call inflation right now. There's going to be other way there's going to be other prices on goods that go up because it's getting harder to hire people, although the people who are hiring people haven't started raising wages yet. Getting hard, harder to hire people, getting harder to make things, supply chain issues are abounding they are bountiful supply chain issues so add those Same. things up and you're gonna we're gonna see some prices go up where there's also a lot of extra money running around right now so we we both expect a spike in inflation but not a lot of long-term inflation risk there is a significant event that occurred in the treasury market over the last several weeks though and your guess is as good as mine is why it's going on I've read a little bit of commentary about it, and they don't know either. They're just making wild guesses. The internet on the international market, you can buy Chinese ten-year bonds, and you can buy U.S. ten-year bonds. And there seems to be a movement of selling the Chinese bonds and buying the U.S. bonds. Earlier, and matter of fact, through most of the pandemic, it's been the sell U.S. bonds, buy Chinese bonds. Um, and I think the, the best guesses that are out there, well, in my opinion, the best guesses, which doesn't mean a lot, are that the Chinese economy is facing some daunting, I love that term, daunting uh, obstacles going down the road 10 years from now. Right. Whereas the U.S. economy looks more and more healthy. And, and you can feel good about that. Some of the obstacles are clearing up. We still have some obstacles. So 10 years out, we've got... There's a reckoning on Social Security and Medicare that has to occur. So we've got some ob obstacles about 10 years out as well. But the core of our economy is looking a lot better than it did before the pandemic, which is, you know, people say, what do you mean? They've got unemployment the way it is. Well, part of the problem we had before the pandemic is we hadn't been able to push pause long enough to re-gear. And we've re-geared now. There was an article that indicated that, and again, this is just best guesses because the Chinese don't exactly release this information. And if you could get it, you go to prison in China forever because um, it's probably top secret. The Chinese population will probably peak in the next couple of years to the highest it's ever been. And then it will start downhill. And as it starts downhill, the 
population starts to age because people keep getting older, but they don't have, they're not having babies. They're having very few babies. And it's beginning, it's going to have an impact on China starting about 10 years from now that should be fairly significant as fewer and fewer people are in the working age category. Yeah. Um, something that happened in 2017 to, I didn't see it reported anywhere, including uh, the the really, really nerdy things that, that we read. I looked at it just based on demographics. I'm watching this stuff. The Chinese passed us as far as the average age in their country. Uh, in, in 2017, they passed us and it, it was like 37 and a half years old, they passed us up. What does that mean? It means that their, number one, their population is aging faster than ours. Call a timeout here, please. Hold on a second. How can someone be aging faster than someone else? Have kids. <sighs> yeah, the average population age stays younger if you have more kids. So averages are a little bit weird. Otherwise, you would say, no. wait a minute, you can't age faster than me. Well, I, I think that's, I think it's reversal. It's reversal. The yeah, average age. When you, have, when you have kids, you get older quicker. Yeah. The, the adults get older quicker, but because they had kids, the average population's getting younger. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But you feel a lot older after you've had kids. Yes, you do. Take care of them. Yeah. Changed a few thousand diapers. Yeah, absolutely. So that is, uh, that's what we're seeing in China and they have a demographic issue that is far worse than ours. And when we talk about, you know, we've got a reckoning coming on social security and Medicare, that's a demographic issue. The number of workers to retirees, the ratio is not as good as it used to be to, <laughs> as a ma major understatement. The Chinese have it worse. They don't have social security or Medicare. Uh, and they have an aging population that's getting older faster than ours. And if you think about that for a minute, we're looking at, well, what do we do when uh, average age drops uh, in a, in a, like Australia for a long time, its age was dropping. The United States age was dropping for about 180 years. It was staying about even for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years, but that was mostly due to immigration, slight growth. Well, now we are teetering right on the edge of shrinking and we're seeing some really, really preliminary numbers coming in right now. Mostly anecdotal, but still important stuff about that maybe we do have a little bit of a pandemic baby boom. Everybody was saddened because we had uh, a, a baby dearth uh, about three months ago from the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody was thinking about making babies. And so three months ago was about nine and a half or 10 months after the beginning of the pandemic. We saw the birth rate drop tremendously, but we're starting to see it pick back up and it seems to be picking back up at a relatively fast rate. We may actually get a little baby boom out of this. If that's the case, it will make us younger. That is absolutely not the case in China. There are um, lots of advertisements from the government right now about wait to have children, even though all the way up to this last year, there are advertisements about have more babies because they're a little concerned about it. And first, you can only have one baby. And now, please have more babies, but the culture's changed. Well, they're asking the people during the pandemic to wait. 
to have babies again. And that's not good for their long term. 10 years out is going to be a bit of an issue for them. Anyway, I I'm almost hijacked that issue. Please please continue. Price of oil kind of followed uh, the interest rates dropped just a little bit to let's see $62.04 uh, ultimately. And that's up a whole bunch because it was $48 at the beginning of the year. $48 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate Crude. It's up to $62 now. And if you don't think that's significant, look at the gas pump and see what you're paying when you put fuel in your vehicle. It's a good sign, by the way. It means that demand is caught up with supply. The We're in a pretty good equilibrium, not too far off, interestingly enough, from where we were when the thing when the pandemic started. Pretty much, we're not quite up as high as it was uh, before the pandemic. Twenty nineteen was up to sixty nine dollars a barrel, but it was, and it was also before they're down to forty six dollars a barrel a couple of times. So oil prices wander around, but as far as oil is concerned, the price of oil, the pandemic's over, which is a good healthy sign in the economy. It means, and if you wonder who's burning all the oil, all you have to do is get on the highway. Yep, there's a lot of people on the highway at this point. I don't know where they're going because half of them are going one way and half of them are going the other way, which indicates that there's something weird going on. They can't if all agree. If there's something really big happening, all of them be going the same direction. Now, they do that as you get close to Austin. In the morning, they all go south. We're up in north of Austin. And in the afternoon, they all go north, which is a sort of mass migration like the Vilda Beast in Africa. We haven't figured that one out either, but we're analyzing it. Yeah. So this this whole concept of where we're going, what's going on, are you, have you hit all the points you needed in the market? Because we just got a question yeah. that fits so nicely into what we're just talking about. Shoot, yes, let's go. Uh, John, our most faithful questioner, um, has sent That's us... We, we, should, we should rename him. The questing of... John the questioner. John the quester. The questioner. Uh, the... The question is, and the subject line in the email is 60-40 rule. He's referring to this old adage across Wall Street and into Main Street that at retirement, someone should have, some theoretical person should have 60% of their portfolio in stocks and 40% in bonds. And as their age goes up, they need to shrink their stocks and get more bonds. Well, his question is, if this rule was ever legit, with interest rates at historic lows, what kind of bonds and what percent makes sense for retirement? Well, the first part of the question is the best part. If this rule was ever legit, let's let's hit that first. It was legit. It was legit for a stretch of multiple decades. It be long enough that it became a rule of thumb that people were like, this is what you need to do in a portfolio and we're still holding that. When was it legit? And it was legit in a period of falling interest rates. Because in, in a bond portfolio, and this is counterintuitive, it's, it's not so counterintuitive in your bank account. If you have a bank account and another bank offers you a better interest rate, and this is a bank account you're not using for all of your purchases online for everything, it's easy to move it. The other bank has a better interest rate. You're going to move the money, or a lot of people will. If they're looking for the best interest rate possible and they're just actively looking for that, they're going to move the money. Well, that causes 
the bank where you currently are either to raise interest rates to keep up with the competition or to lose assets, their value goes down. Same thing happens in the bond market. When interest goes up, when interest rate goes up for bonds, if you already have a portfolio of bonds that you bought, their interest rate does not go up. Those are existing. They have a contract that says they're only going to pay you this much. And in a falling interest rate environment, that means your portfolio just became worth more money because you could turn around and sell these bonds that are paying a higher interest rate than the rest of the market and everybody's going to want to buy it. That gives you a premium on your assets. The opposite happens when the interest rates are rising. It starts to discount the bond price. In a stock portfolio, we don't call it discounting it. We call it you just lost value. Uh, the reason why it's called discount or premium in a bond market is because at some future date, you're supposed to actually get the maturity value. There was a time when that rule made sense in the long term. Uh, it was a good rule of thumb when bonds were, interest rates were fairly stable. And the 10-year bond was running along, 10-year treasury was running along about 6%. And inflation was running about 5 or 6%. The stock market is running along about 12%. So what you could do is say, if I get, if half of, if 40% of my portfolio is earning me 6% a year and 60% of my portfolio is earning me 12% a year, that's not a bad deal. That'll work out pretty well. And it worked much better over time, as Jake said, because interest rates have been falling since 1982. They've been falling consistently, which means the bonds on average have appreciated that you held, you buy bonds, they're worth more later. Uh, as long as you sell them before maturity. So the bond funds have done very well over the last, what, 82, 40 years. Yeah. We've had a 40-year bull market in bonds. And the 60-40 rule kind of emerged from that. Because there's the other thing that, that occurs is in a sudden bear market, there's traditionally has been a rush from stocks into bonds. So bonds tend to appreciate in value as interest rates fall in, in a sudden crash in the market while stocks fall in it. So interest rates fall, the bond values rise. So your bond portfolio tended to rise while your stock portfolio tended to fall. That hasn't worked very well recently. As a matter of fact, during the 2009, 2008-2009 great, great Recession or whatever it's called, the, the market crash, bonds fell as fast as stocks did. It also didn't work during the pandemic. The problem is interest rates are so, and the other problem is interest rates are so astonishingly low that while you're waiting for your, hopefully the bonds to offset the movements of the stocks, you have this problem of not earning anything. I, well, I say not earning anything, next to nothing. You're earning less, in many cases, 1% or so on your bond portfolio. Sometimes you get up to 2%. But when you compare, when you take a stock portfolio and you take 40% of it out and you put it into bonds where you're not literally not earning anything and will not if you hold it to maturity because inflation is running a little higher than the interest rate on the typical bond portfolio right now, putting 40% of your portfolio in a guaranteed loss position is probably not the smartest thing in the world to do. Now, there are other alternative, there are alternatives to that. I bet Jay can talk about them. Yeah, and what, what we're talking about we just got really, really technical on a really kind of a basic question. We like to kind of pull the hood up and let you see under underneath to see why we say what we say. 
all of the stuff that we talked about, the biggest piece of that is that we it apparently are in a ra- rising interest rate economy at this point. And if that's the case, then holding a large percentage of your portfolio in bonds with a long maturity value is not good necessarily. It's not true across all, there's still reasons to hold those in a portfolio other than the 60-40 rule. So this is one of the problems about saying it's a bad idea is that it's a bad idea to just blindly use the the 60-40 rule. What are some alternatives? You were saying this. There are a lot of different asset classes and there's huge parts of the bond market that are not in this horrible situation. The shorter term bonds uh, don't have a whole lot of fluctuation. They can be used if, if, as long as they're really well rated. They can, they can be used for reserve areas. So, so what would you say a good alternative is to the 60-40 rule? I've got, I've got a whole bag full of them that I could bring out here, but you, you sounded excited when you say, I'm sure Jake could tell you all about the alternatives. Well, the purpose of the 60-40 portfolio is to reduce the volatility in, the, in your investment portfolio. In other words, when the market falls, theoretically, if you have a 60-40 portfolio, your, your account will not fall as far as the market does. I would even it say hypothetically cushion. at this point. There was a time that it was theoretical. It's now back to hypothesis. It's not provable at this point. Certainly not, certainly not a guaranteed thing. But that was the idea behind the 60-40 rule is so that you wouldn't get scared and bailed out of the market. Now, this is a the fact. The fact is that 60% of your portfolio is going to fall with the stock market in a panic. Right. It's just a fact. It's going to happen. If you, but the problem with the 60-40 rule right now, the biggest problem is your expected rate of return is going to be pretty low going forward. Right. So what if you're satisfied with a very low expected rate of return in your portfolio and you have, if you have millions of dollars and you only need $40,000, if you have $5 million and you only need $40,000 a year to live on, shoot, yes, put a lot of bonds in there, do whatever you want to do. But if you're like everybody else that I know that's invested, you have a retirement portfolio and you want to get the maximum safe return from it. A safe is a is an interesting term there. But the maximum return that you want to get a return that will provide a good retirement income, having 40% of your portfolio in bonds that are earning less than 1% or 2%. And in many cases, now this is an important thing to look at when you buy bonds. And this is technical, but it's very real. Most cases, when you go to buy a bond portfolio, the bonds are priced well above 100, which means they will be worth less when they mature than they are when you buy them. They will mature at 100. If they're worth more and you buy them at a higher amount, if you hold them to maturity, you will get less than what you paid for them. You get interest payment in the meantime, but that's something that you really need to hold in your mind when buying bonds. So... The point is, is there an alternative to that? And that, and Jake was asking about that. There are some ways of getting around that. Uh, there are a couple of ways. One, the biggest thing is if you if you can tolerate the movement in the portfolio, which you need to be able to do even with the 60% stocks, you can tolerate the fact that the portfolio, in order to get a higher return, is going to move up and down. It's going to. And the higher return you want, the more it'll move up and down. Now, moving up and down doesn't give you the higher return, but it is a result of, of asking for a higher return is to see the portfolio values move up and down more. If you can tolerate that, the trick is to say, okay, in a panic market, 
what happens. Stock market crashes. Everything crashes together as it did in, 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 in 2008 and 2009 and again when the pandemic hit. Everything crashes together and then it starts to come back. But you say, now what comes back first and what comes back consistently? And this is just hypothetical, but let me give you an example. Let's just say you had a stock, and this is not absolutely unusual at this point. Let's say you had a AAA-rated company that's a stock company that produces something for consumer usage, for example, diapers. People don't stop using diapers in a recession. Matter of fact, they may actually increase the diaper use in a recession. recession as we saw, or somebody that manufactures toilet paper. Toilet paper manufacturing was a really good idea in this particular <laughs> recession. Well, and let's say it was a AAA-rated, large AAA-rated company with plenty of cash reserves that pays a 3% dividend where the market is now. And I'm not saying there are, but let's say there were. If the market panics and all stocks drop 50%, that company's dividend goes to 6% because the price dropped, but the payout continues the same. So now you have somebody who will pay you 6% to own a stock that eventually will come back, presuming the entire economy doesn't collapse. So with the bottom of the market crash, when people wake up and say, no, the world is actually not coming to an end, they look around and say, whoa, wait a minute, this consumer products company over here that's AAA rated, that's been around nearly forever, that has lots of cash and can pay dividends probably from now to eternity, and is still making a great profit, will pay me 6% just to own the stock. People start buying those stocks first, and they tend to come back pretty quickly. So that's one way of cushioning it. The other one, and this is the big one is to have plenty of dry powder if you're dependent on income from your portfolio, or if you think you're going to take a withdrawal from your portfolio. Yeah, dry powder being reserves that you can tap without selling while the market's down. So it's short-term bonds and cash. You have to be kind of careful with the short-term bonds and make sure they're what they, what they appeal to be. And when we say cash, we're talking about money market funds. Admittedly, there's very little interest rates in money market funds, but there's very little interest rate anywhere else too. So the issue is to be able to ride out the down market and do your withdrawals from the market in the up markets. Yeah, I think developing a strategy to do that. The bottom line of the 60-40, that whole concept was, there's something in there, I'm gonna use the words, it's called negative correlation. Negative correlation, we'll get in all kinds of technical. Well, correlation is when two things go up at the same time and down at the same time, they're correlated. Negative correlation means that when one goes up, the other goes down. If you had perfect negative correlation and you had 50-50, 50% in each, you would get no return because one would go up and the other would go down. But you'd have almost no risk as well. Okay, that's the purely academic stuff. The reality is in the market, there's no such thing as a perfect negative correlation. But if you get two well-returning asset classes with low correlation. They're not getting the returns at the same time. They're not dropping at the same time and they're not going up at the same time. And they both long-term have good returns. Then what you're talking about here is lowering the overall bumpiness of the portfolio. It's a good idea. It's an idea that came around about 30 years after somebody uh, wrote a paper that won a Nobel Prize in, in the 1990s, he, he developed it in the 1950s. 
And that's modern portfolio theory sprang out of it. It was a paper called Portfolio Selection. We really like it because it's looking at what happens in downturns and in upturns. What asset classes go up? What asset classes go down? What does recover first and what recovers last? Which ones have the best return? But most important out of all of that is when you mix them together, how do you lower your risk by using the portfolio's other assets as shock absorbers? And that's still a very effective way of planning for for your finances. It's been effective for 70 years now. And it, and it works really well. So the 60-40 rule was a simplified version of that that people say, hey, this, why do you have to go so complex over there? You just do 60-40. Well, now it's not working. So you had something you actually, wanted to add? The 60-40 rule is based on the experience of people in the markets, and it became a group experience, kind of a rule of thumb. But it became a rule of thumb over the last 40 years when bonds have been appreciating. Bonds do not appreciate forever. I've been in this business long enough now to remember when they didn't appreciate, when they depreciated, when interest rates were going up in the early 1980s. Late 1970s, early 1980s, bond portfolios were terrible. They would, they basically were falling like rocks. Uh, and stocks weren't doing a lot better during the same time period. So, And if you ever want to think there's some way to smooth the market out, there's some way that you can get the bright mixture of asset classes that you still get a good return, but the market, you remove what we call market variance. Go and look at the investment history, uh, performance history of some of the bull and bear funds. They're called bull and bear funds. They're called all weather funds. They're basically people have tried to put these theories together that they have about mixing stocks and bonds and derivatives and things together to smooth out the ride in the market and still get a decent return. And what you find out is, um, People who put the fund together got a decent return on their money, but the people who invested in it didn't because they lost money. Yeah. It's pretty consistent. There's one of the fundamental rules to understand, and this is the this is the key to being a long-term investor, is that the price of an appreciation asset, an asset that you want to appreciate that's going to get you historically has gotten you and you hope will get you in the future a good return is going to vary and the higher the return you ask for the higher the variance is going to be it, it's the you cannot have high return without high risk everybody mm. that thinks that they have gotten high return without high risk um are just not aware of the risks they've been taking well let's let's define risk for a moment um it's not a risk of losing all of your money it's a risk that the market's going to go down and you're going to sell if you are broadly diversified, I don't recommend by any stretch of the imagination that you get into the S&P 500 as, a, as your primary investment. But if you look at the S&P 500, it goes up and down a lot, it has, but it has, of all the individual places and indexes you can go in where in around the world, it's got one of the best returns. It also has a lot of ups and downs in it, but it represents the United States economy. And as I've said to a lot of people, a well-diversified portfolio in the United States represents a, a piece of the United States economy. And the way you lose all your money is if the economy collapsed, in which case you lose all your money no matter where you had it. Right. And that's, that is kind of a key thing. I, we, we've got more to talk about. I think we hit the 60-40 rule fairly well. We got more to talk about when we come back. 
please stay tuned. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Yeah, we are uh, we're here to talk finance, economics, taxes, trying to avoid politics as much as possible, but somehow politics sticks its finger into the economic uh, soup bowl more often than we like. Uh, maybe the economic soup bowl is really just a soup of politics and politics means people. Yeah, it's pretty much politics. Just we vote with our money. It's an interesting way of looking at it. We got a lot to talk about. Um, we talked about different ways of allocating your portfolio in retirement. What, man, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. The economy is in the middle of a pretty massive shift, a massive change. The people, the marketplace is in the middle of a massive shift. There was a big article this week in the Wall Street Journal about that had some charts on it on what people feel about electric vehicles. That seems like a little small subject. Why is Jake talking about this? Well, because... Pre-pandemic, early spring of 2020, according to this research, in the United States, um, about 35%, a little over 30, 34% of people in the United States said uh, they'd be willing to buy an electric vehicle, possibly. One year has passed. We're now at the number 51% in the U.S. saying they'd be willing to buy an electric vehicle. That's a massive shift, and the United States isn't the only place where it's happened. So it's happened. Uh, China, pre-pandemic, was saying 52% of the people in China wouldn't mind buying an electric vehicle, and now they're at 92%. That is massive. That means that the market in China for electric vehicles is taking off right at a time when they have electric vehicles for sale. I don't know that they have the capacity to make that many electric vehicles to meet the demand when 92% of the people are willing to look at electric vehicles as their next vehicle choice. Um, in Italy, it's 78%. In Spain, it's 73%. France, 62%. So we're talking about the major nations on the planet, not a single one of them is below 50% of the population unwilling. So more than 50% of the population is willing to buy an electric vehicle and every major economy on the planet. And some of those economies, it's way higher than that. That's a major shift. This isn't a green movement. People look at, I keep hearing this, that electric cars keep lumped, being lumped in with the green stuff. It is now, if we look at your average Tesla compared to the, the leading competitor model to each Tesla product, it now costs less money over the lifetime of the vehicle to own an electric vehicle. Now, if you listened to our program 10 years ago, you probably heard me talking about battery technology is not there. 
There, it costs so much more to own an electric vehicle. The only reason why you would do it is for prestige. It's kind of cool. If you're willing to pay extra for that, then you should. If not, then don't worry about it yet. Well, that's flipped. It's now lifetime of the vehicle, less expensive to own an electric vehicle than an internal combustion vehicle. That's not green stuff that we're talking, I mean, except money. That's the green movement. The same when we're talking about the wind power in, in Texas. It isn't because Texas somehow became a liberal bastion that suddenly renewable energy is it's the largest in the nation production. No, it's because it's profitable. The technology has finally come around to, to bring the profitability within range, even when you take the subsidies completely out of it. So that's something that is huge. Those of you and those that you know that are still looking at this as some kind of an environmental movement, it's really easy to be an environmentalist if it costs you nothing. If it's more profitable to be an environmentalist, it's easy to be one. It kind of takes away the reason not to be one because if we go back to like the Kyoto Accords and, and the, the big movements over the last several decades of the major countries to say, let's cut back on emissions, well, that was clearly a negative to the economy. It would have been a big positive for pollution, big positive for all kinds of environmental reasons, but for economic reasons, it didn't make sense at all, which is why... We've had a lot of American presidents say, no, we're not doing that. Uh, we weren't signed into the Kyoto Accords, even though we helped set them up. And the reason is because the American presidents said, hey, I'm not going to sign us up for something that nobody's following the rules for. And if you look at the Kyoto Accords, nobody followed the rules. There's not a single country that met their targets on the Kyoto Accords. It's just interesting side note. The Green Movement was a political thing saying we have to sacrifice because this danger is here. Well, not enough people recognize the danger. It was not a big enough danger in most people's minds to make a sacrifice on the financial end. Okay. There are a lot of people that still look at it that way. There's not enough reasons to make this financial sacrifice. Well, when it's not a financial sacrifice, suddenly more people are willing to do it. When it's actually a financial boon, where you're being paid by the marketplace because the product that you have is less expensive than, and more quality. That's the transition that we're seeing right now. And I'm saying it the way I am because a lot of people get locked into the political mindset of green versus not green, petroleum versus all these new upstarts. Don't put the petroleum companies out of business just because of this new thing that doesn't work. Well, the doesn't work part is the issue now. It's working. And a lot of money is being spent by the big petroleum companies to get into renewable energy because they're not really petroleum companies. They're companies that are trying to make money in energy. Keep that in mind, please. If those companies, the ones whose very existence is wrapped up around the concept, are willing to invest in, here's the air quotes, I'm making the bunny ears, green energy, then it's a, a statement about profitability now, not about greenness. This is another thing. You're already starting to see it. There's going to be a big environmental backlash against a lot of the electric car manufacturers and the renewable energy area, period. Wait a minute. Am I saying that green energy is going to have a backlash from the environmentalists? Yes. 
because it's really dirty mining lithium. Really, very dirty mining lithium. And that's the way that we're storing the power that we're earning through this renewable energy thing. So my big thought on this, and this is just, just write this down, in 10 years, will the conservatives be defending lithium mining and the liberals be trying to limit it? What do you think on that? I think it won't be that simple. I don't know that lithium mining over time will be cleaned up. Fortunately, it's mostly mined someplace else, right. which is one of the problems we have. One of the reasons we have a problem with rare earth, another thing that's that's critical. Wait, we're about to switch subjects. We're about to switch subjects. So let's finish this subject up real quick and then switch to it. So are we on lithium. Yeah, and then the lithium thing. I I just just write it down. I think it's going to be a big thing over the next five years that the environmentalists are going to start bringing up the dirtiness of lithium, and I think that the, the conservatives are going to start crowing. See, told you so. Told you so. Once the liberals are down on lithium enough, the conservatives are going to start defending it. That's my thought. The other thing that is critical is rare earths because the magnets in electric vehicles are made from rare earths and the rare earths are are dug up in China mainly. And the reason they're dug up in China mainly is because, again, this is an extremely dirty process. The, the, the extraction and purification of rare earths to, the, to create the actually not very rare earths. Yeah, it's not really rare. They're just called rare. Which is difficult to produce is an extremely dirty process, and we don't like to do it in the United States because it's very polluting to the environment, or else you have to have a lot of equipment to keep our environment from being polluted. I think there's where we're going to see the big we're going to we're the big push right now to get the rare earth manufacturing back into the United States so that we can manufacture electric vehicles. And by the way, we need it. We need those magnets for jet aircraft and a lot of other things too that are related to defense. We need the, to get it back in the United right. States. But the, the problem is chip it's shortage. Dirty. The chip shortage that we're experiencing right now because they're made elsewhere is directly related to the fact that we don't have enough rare earths here. We're not close enough to the place where it's mined to be profitable against Japan, or Japan, Taiwan, and and China on manufacturing these chips because of rare earths. You mean Korea? Korea, Korea, and Korea as well. The majority yeah. Korea, Korea China, Taiwan, Korea and, and Taiwan. China. Yeah. We manufacture, it's interesting, we manufacture a lot of chips in the United States, it's just not the ones that people need. Well, they need them, but it's not the critical ones, not the right. ones that they're in shortage. Yeah. We, we manufacture a lot of memory chips in the United States, but the processing chips are mainly manufacturing in, for cars and so on, are mainly, mainly manufactured in Korea and Taiwan, and they are running at maximum capacity. Yeah. So, and the other fact, oddly enough, the freeze that we had in February affected chip production because there's a chip production plant in Austin that got shut down because of the electric, electric failure. Right. So what we're saying across the board is if we want to bring jobs back and mining back and infrastructure back to the United States, we're going to need to look at better technology for mining the rare earths the reason why the California mine that used to be the number one producer in the world of rare earth metals, the lithium and batteries, uh, major components for electronics across the board, uh, the, the magnets and there's a, there's a list of metals that's about 20 long that are all used at, in 
relatively high amounts in electronics. We used to be the number one producers in the world. It was a mine in California. It keeps going out of business because it's dirty. And we're almost out of time. We can talk more about this. This fits right into supply chain issues. It, it fits into a lot of things. In order for us to stay competitive, we're going to need to develop cleaner ways of doing things cleaner, cheaper ways, which are not always in the same uh, subject. But we're about out of time for this hour. I can talk about some, time, some places where cleaner and, and cheaper coincided recently next hour. We've got our radio program going back a long ways. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can contact us there, or you can email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com.